Welcome back to part two of the podcast. I'm Jeffrey Madoff here with Dan Sullivan, and we're going to talk about anything and everything. If there's anybody in the United States who I think worries the people in the tech world, it's Tim Wu. And the reason he said the way they've tried to escape the antitrust legislation is they say, well, every other antitrust, they control the market and then they jack the prices up. Mm-hmm. Not only do we not jack the prices up, we give it away for free. Okay. So he said, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But he said, they have a valid point that if you think you're getting for free, you're actually the product. Right. Which is the basis of network television. Yeah. And radio. Yeah. They've developed enough enemies in not only the federal government, but in all the state governments, that there's a showdown at the OK Corral coming. I think in the next 10 years, there's going to be a real coming to grips with us like it came with. And NBC wouldn't allow FM. FM radio could have come in the 1930s. It didn't come in until the 1970s, I think, 1970s. It was 40 years. They kept it off. NBC kept it off. Very interesting is that when FM radio came in, it really created the political polarization that we have going on right now, 30 or 40 years later. Now, how do you mean that? Well, if you look at FM radio today, if I go to New York, I immediately look for the FM radio, and it's, it's either a university station or it's a classical station. So what happened with FM, as far as I can see, is the people who really took advantage of FM actually politically were kind of on the left, okay? You know, NPR is, you know, if I listen to it, uh, it doesn't sound like Rush Limbaugh to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sounds like there's a difference of opinion, difference approach between these two things. And the political left, which was the Democratic Party, which controlled AM radio, I mean, starting with Roosevelt, they really got a handle on AM radio. But the quality with FM was so good, okay, and you didn't have to broadcast for hundreds of miles, you just had to broadcast in your listening area. And my sense is that they emotionally, psychologically gravitated to monopolizing FM radio, and they just abandoned AM radio, and the political right came in and took over AM radio. And now it's just become kind of a monolith, and not a right monolith, it's just a monolith because all the stations were bought up. Yeah. Yeah, they were very cheap, and they could bring the advertising. It was easier for them to get the advertising. You know, we have the number one jazz station in Canada in the floor below us. They're in the same building with us. And every two weeks, they've got a fundraising campaign going on. You know, like they're looking for government money and now government isn't giving the money they need and they have to fundraise all the time, which is really odd because they're coast to coast because their signal is on the internet and you can get it for free. You know, you can get it for free just on the on the internet. But the platform thing is really just the way the tech industry after, let's say, 50 years, I'll say, I think it kind of started 
in the form that we have right now kind of started, you know, probably when they started calling them integrated circuit, the microchip. I think probably when they started using the word microchip, it became what it is today. But it's kind of interesting. It's kind of broken into three different types of things. There's platforms and then there's programs like, you know, you have various kinds of really powerful programs. I use InDesign. That's a program. That's not a platform. That's a program. You know, a very powerful program. Excel is a very powerful program. So like Adobe would be, just so everyone understands, Adobe would be a platform, but InDesign, Illustrator, Photoshop, Premiere, etc. Yeah. Those rest on top of that platform. That's the software or whatever the programs you'd be talking yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's a border like where you have a fence or thing. I think it's a matter of scale. It's a matter of scale and features. But at a certain point, you're the 800-pound gorilla, okay? And everybody just automatically, out of instinct, goes to you. And other people design things to work on your platform. You know, I mean, I grew up in one. I grew up in the Catholic Church. Catholic Church, I mean, if you want to look at a platform, is, you know, no, I mean, in its present form, it's about 1,600 years, around 400 it starts. And it's got 1.2 billion that the, you know, in some way through census or anything, people say, I'm a Catholic. You know, I go to church on Easter, you know, or I go to church on Christmas. But this 1.2 billion and so I got three levels of management. It's got the Pope, it's got the bishops, and it's got the priests. There is no other levels of management. And I said, you know, they're pretty well everywhere. And if you look at the history of the world, or especially Europe, as that this was a platform which succeeded from the Roman Empire, which was a platform. You know, the Roman Empire was a tremendous platform. And the Roman Catholic Church is a successor politically a successor to the Roman Empire. But it's very interesting, in the United States, the political parties are actually programs. The Democratic Party and the Republican Party are programs that are competing for audience, okay? The platform's the Constitution. Interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, and the Constitution is actually designed to protect the people from the government. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you read Hamilton, not so much Hamilton, who was, Hamilton had Caesarian dreams for himself. You know, I mean, he, I think the U.S. missed a bullet when he took up dueling, you know, like uh, (laughs) a thing. But Madison is the genius of the Constitution, and nothing can move without a countervailing force in the Constitution. And I think that's the platform. That's actually the platform. It's designed to not work well. It's designed to make government not work well. And explain that. Well, it's got so many checks and balances in it. So, for example, we're going through a period right now where there's an emergence of very, very powerful states. The states have tremendous power. And the American states are equal or superior to the European countries that are in the EU. They can fool around with tax policy. They can compete with each other. They're very, very competitive. They have an enormous amount of sovereignty that a lot of people don't really. They can do trade deals. You know, a state can do a trade deal. I mean, they have to get the agreement of the federal government to go along, but they, they each have their own army. 
California's got all four. It's got Army, Navy, Marines, and you know, National Guard, Coast Guard, everything like that. So they're like these little countries. But the Constitution, which was approved in 1787, if you type it out on single space on normal typewriter pages, it was 23 pages in 1787. And right now it's 27 pages. So in 230 years, they've added four pages to it. Mm. And the amendments are like this. The amendments are about this big. What I think it was, it's a platform for creating what I think is an entrepreneurial economy. Okay. I'm tracking with you. I want to hear where that goes. Yeah. And I think the reason was that even in the early days, and early days, I'd say at the time of the revolution, that's about 150 years since, you know, the first coming on, on the shore, they had a sense that this was an incredibly once in human history opportunity to do something here. Yeah, and, and there's so much to unpack with what you just said that that's like a few programs <laughs> yeah. in and of itself. Because, you know, it's, it's really interesting because even with some of the things that came about, for instance, the government getting involved in breaking up monopolies, which, of course, started as entrepreneurship, yeah. which I guess as every business sort of starts as an entrepreneurship. And then the question is now, you know, where there seems to be so much power back to tech now and the platforms, you know, is that for the public good? Is that something that needs to come under more regulation by the government? Mm -hmm. Back to Tim Wu, this is like a love story to Tim Wu, but at least it would be good to have somebody asking questions who knows what the hell they're talking about. Well, and he <laughs> knows the history. I mean, the thing right. that I love about Tim is that I think if you were totally opposed to what Tim is proposing, you'd still read his books with fascination because he's telling you the history. Absolutely. He's telling you the history of your side that you didn't know. Right. You know, he's kind of explaining, well, this is how this came about. And he's very admiring of the huge enterprises that were created out of this and the people who actually created them. He said, these are amazing human beings. But he said, is there a point where you cross a line where it's not really for the benefit of the country anymore? Right. And my sense is that the Constitution is designed to handle that. I read both sides. I mean, I vote a particular way and I tend to favor certain positions. And then basically everything starts with entrepreneurism. And I work outwards from the center being entrepreneurism. And I said, who supports entrepreneurism? What are the regulations like? What are the taxes like? But my basic attitude about it is that I think the country was designed to encourage and to expand entrepreneurial activity in the marketplace. I think that's true to a point. And then I think where there becomes the difference is when too much power is concentrated. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's not like these corporations like entrepreneurs. Well, right, you know, because they become less about innovation and more about preserving position. Yeah, the platform. So that means you yeah. shut down competition, you shut yeah. down yeah. innovation. I mean, with Bell Telephone, although arguably, you know, Bell Telephone was one of the most powerful monopolies for decades. When you look at the monopoly being broken up, you started seeing innovation 
that had been basically thwarted for decades. Oh, yeah. 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 Because they would sue everybody that did anything, you know, that messed with regular phone service. Yeah. Well, Tim in his book actually says that if you don't break up AT&T in the early 70s, you don't get the Internet revolution in the 90s. He said that because all the talent that got freed up, you know, the resources and capabilities got freed up from this ironclad hold that AT&T had. I mean, the funny one was the guy who created the phone, the phone, attachment little here. plastic ball, basically. Yes. Little plastic ball. So people couldn't hear your conversation. They said, no, 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 you, <laughs> no, you can't touch. Oh, no, no, no. There's Wasn't that amazing? That story? Yeah. And that guy fought for 30 years and died penniless. <laughs> right. you know I mean, yeah, because it's not about right or wrong at that point. It's who's got the deeper pockets who can strangle you with litigation. Well, the other thing is that Bell, um, to this day, Bell is still deeply involved in national security issues. You know, if you go and you examine who's at the meetings in the National Security Agency and, you know, the CIA, I bet somewhere not too far down the run is a representative of the communications companies. Mm-hmm. Like Oracle, Oracle is the 80% of all government data is safeguarded, safeguarded by Oracle. You don't hear about Oracle. You don't hear about that guy. You know, he just buys whole islands in the Hawaiian chain. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You don't hear him saying much. He doesn't talk much. He's, he's got no views. I mean, he's not an influencer. He's not a social media influencer in that but he's got 80% of all data storage for the federal government. Yeah, Ellison, right? Yeah. And I think something that would be interesting to go into, because this struck me as you were talking about like FM and AM. Yeah. It would be probably a different program than this one is, as Gord will be tying himself into knots editing this one. But I think there's yeah. a lot of interesting stuff in here. Look at FM and AM. FM was the superior technology. AC and DC, you know, we were stuck with AC, but DC was a better and more efficient technology. VHS and beta. Beta was a far superior technology. QWERTY keyboards, and I forget what the other one was called, but there was such a large user base for QWERTY that they couldn't overcome it, even though it was much better. Well, the problem why they had to resort to QWERTY is the typists were getting too good. QWERTY, though, is also the keys that used to come up would get... Oh, that's right. The typists were too fast. Yeah, and so, that's right. So they had to slow the typists down, or it couldn't go broad. And the thing is, though, that the other keyboard was much more ergonomic, and you could type a lot faster, yeah. except there was a huge user base already out there for QWERTY. That's why the Japanese and Germans, one of the reasons why they lost the war, is they spent probably... The frontline war machines, the tanks, the airplanes, especially the rifles and everything else. Technologically, the Germans were much superior to the planes that they were putting in the sky. But they required a tremendous number of man hours by highly trained, highly trained workers. And the pilots had to be highly trained to fly the planes. Okay. And the Americans and the British, but more the Americans, the Americans said, you know, 
We got a guy who, you know, like a pilot who shoots down 12 enemy planes, take him off the line, send him back and train people. <laughs> the German pilots were in the hundreds, the hundreds of kills, and then they were killed, and nobody got the benefit of any of their experience or knowledge. Interesting. Same thing happened with their factories when the factories were destroyed by bombs and that, and so many of the workers were killed. They didn't have the workers to create the technology. There was a great story I said, and this kind of tells you why the U.S. won the war. There was a German general from about five miles off when the Normandy invasion occurred. So they moved quite quickly. Once they got ashore, they started moving quickly. And they started taking advantage of the rail yards in France and everything. And there's this German officer, a general, he was looking at through binoculars. They were that close to the front. And he said, I've been watching that train. He says, I know how long that train is. That train is three miles long. And he says, this is more war equipment I've seen in one place in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And it's on that train. And there will be another one tomorrow. He says, there's no possibility of us winning. The thing of getting really big distribution and having big distribution, you know, I don't think Amazon is any more amazing than Sears and Roebuck. They basically became Sears and Roebuck, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And Sears and Roebuck, you could order a house in their catalog and it would be delivered. All the parts and the plans would be delivered within 10 days to your local station. And then you had to get a local carpenter to follow the, the rules. But there's hundreds and thousands of Sears and Roebuck homes which can't be torn down today, but these came right out of the catalog. Do you remember their slogan? Sears has everything. <laughs> and that's what's so fascinating. And arguably, the first internet was the catalog. Yep. Because you could remotely order. Yep. Right? Sears and Roebuck was a platform, you know. Yeah. 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 And, you know, Sears and Roebuck should have, could have, become Amazon, but also innovation stopped. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I'd love us to go into it in another program, because when I mentioned the FM, AM, and ACDC, and beta, VHS, and all that, why do better ideas often fail? <laughs> and why do the more mediocre ideas succeed? Well, it practically happened to Apple. And how so? Well, when did you start using Apple? I'm one of those outliers that I stayed with PCs. Oh, wow. But my company, by the way, all of our editing equipment, everything that we used other than what I had on my desktop was Apple because at the time it was superior for editing. Yeah. You know, and it positioned itself well for the application in the arts and yeah. allegedly more creative. It's really, you know, the computer's just a tool. doesn't make any difference. You know, we've been an Apple shop since 1987, and everything's run by Apple. And I could tell by the employees that we've hired over the years who have come across, and they were trained on Windows, on PCs, and they said, this is so much easier. It's almost intuitive. You know, they learn programs and everything else. So I've got this buildup of years and years and years 
of our team. We've had, you know, probably close to 500 people who've worked for us over 30, 32 years in all of our offices. I would say half of them didn't come from Apple training. They came from PCs. And they said, it's so great. But the thing about it is that Jobs was very focused. What saved them was that Jobs was very focused. And the telling tale was when he was fired, when he was booted out, and he went out and he was part of the creation of Pixar. And And uh, Next also. Next, you know. And then he, especially Next, he brought back the operating system from Next. That became the operating system they came back with him. But when he came back, he said, how many products are we selling? And (laughs) the guy who was still there, because a lot of them got booted out, said about 70. And he said, in six months, we're going to be down to six. He said, when we left, we had six products. So I'll tell you which four I think should be on the list of six. And you take the other 66 and you work out which two are going to make it up. And they've maintained that. They have this real simplicity of that they don't have a lot of products. I mean, they've got little variations. And the other thing, I mean, he created whole new worlds, like he created the iPod world. So they never innovate any product. They take some product and they make it a lot better. First of all, it's more beautiful. Right. And beauty is part of the Apple toolkit. You know, when they did this, he said, show me what it looks like on the inside. He said, I want to see what it looks like on the inside. And they said, why do you want to see what it looks like? He said, he said, it's got to be beautiful on the inside. Like when you take the cover off and you look at the inner workings, so it's got to be beautiful. And the technician or the engineer, whoever it was, he says, yeah, but Steve, nobody's ever going to see it. And he says, I know they'll never see it, but we'll know it. And my feeling is it takes some sort of passion like that to keep a entrepreneurial company kind of honest. I think you're right. You know, if you look at Apple's designs, you know, because aesthetic was a huge part of it. And one of the things that Jobs said about Microsoft, as he said that I don't, something to do, if I'm paraphrasing, he said, I don't resent the fact that they're successful. I resent the fact they have no taste. (laughs) And, you know, design was a big part of Apple. However, like Apple appropriated everything else because there's no product that they initiated, none, from their operating system on, everything came from something else, their designs, and this would be interesting for the listeners to do, is Google Apple versus Braun. And Braun appliances, which were designed by Dieter Ram, you will see the seed of all of Apple's products. And it's absolutely fascinating. And so there is a saying in business, which is true, which is steal from the best. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. And that was a very smart strategy. And also what you were talking about, the fact that they narrowed their product offering, you know, Apple accessories, the carrying cases for the computers and the phones and all these things, which is over a billion dollar business, they weren't interested in it. And most business leaders would argue, why should we give away that much of the business to somebody else? But in fact, it was the smartest decision they ever made was to stay focused. Yeah. 
Well, you know, the App Store is an interesting thing is that, you know, people really make money on the App Store, you know, other people. And you're constantly striving. It takes a lot to get your app on their store now because they're up, you know, it's a, a million and a half apps now. So they uh, they have a structure or process of getting in there. You know, they have really high standards. We have one on which is called Windstreak. It's a free app, you know, and we went through the ropes with them to get it on and how it looked and everything else and how it worked. But it's very simple. It's a very simple app. But I said, you know, they got standards. You know, they got standards. I'm not bothered by holdups when the reason for the holdup is the other side has standards that they're checking off the boxes. All the people who said, you know, you could make money on anything, you can make money on your thing. Well, they don't have any standards either. Right. Because if that's the only standard, obviously products will suffer. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is that iTunes, I mean, iTunes is the biggest, I don't know whether they would still be considered the largest distributor of music in the world, but they're certainly large. You know, Steve Jobs had this interesting thing. He said, you know, why when you like a song and you go to the record store, do you have to buy 11 more songs to get the one song that you want? <laughs> he said, I mean, that's crazy, though. You like this song and then you have to go in. And in order to get that one song, you got to buy 11 more songs and you don't want the other 11 songs. He said, why can't you just get the song you want? And that was one thing. And he said, the other thing is, you know, the artist, he said, I've looked into the economics. And he said, once you get past all the law firms and accounting firms and the manufacturing thing, the artist is getting, what, five cents on the dollar, 10 cents on the dollar. He says, what if we gave the artist 60 cents on the dollar? And there was nobody else. It was just the artist and us. Well, I think Title tried that. You know, Jay-Z's company, streaming company. Yeah. But what was interesting is when he said, why just buy one? When we were growing up, Dan, if you remember, it was 45s. You ain't got two. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And John Farrell, our IP lawyer, he said, you know, every once in a while, he says, just put on a new white dress and you're all fresh. <laughs> <laughs> You're all fresh to go. He said, none of us actually talk a story that we actually played. He says, you know, we're our own promoters and we talk good things. But he said, you know, you take your knocks and you get up and you dress up and shine yourself back up and you get out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like the lyrics to the song, you know, that's life. Yeah. Riding high in April, getting knocked down in May. <laughs> you know, but, and I think that. The thing is, and I think this is one of the things about entrepreneurship that needs to be revealed or exposed or whatever, is it's work. And there's no shortcut for putting in the work. You've been building your business for 33 years? Well, the program part of it, yeah. And before that, for 15. Right. So there you got 48 years in. Mm. And, you know, it takes the work. So you've had a 48-year shortcut to success. Is that right? Well, you know, and I'm starting to get a feel for... <laughs> I know, and I mean, I mean that seriously, because there's a certain constant to entrepreneurship that as you're getting better, the world is changing. Mm -hmm. That's right. So you don't want your better to be for last year. You want your better to be for the coming year. And that's the adaptable part. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know that you could have predicted that these would be the best years. And many people have said, oh, my God, you're going from live to virtual. It's going to kill your business. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the opposite happened. Well, it was already killed. <laughs> 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 yeah. I mean, we thought it might be two months or three months, but we immediately started creating virtual connectors. We call them connectors. And we created the whole model just to keep connected between March and June. We thought by June we'd be back. But we had created this perfect little two-hour module. And I said, well, let's just put three of them together and we got ourselves a workshop. Anyway, just to wrap up today, platform, program, app, I think it's an interesting model that you can talk about a lot of things because I think a lot of the losing of the entrepreneurial spirit and getting to the monopolistic corporation has to do from the movement of you created a really great app and then you wanted to make it into a program and you created a program and then you wanted to make the program into a really big program, but that's a platform. And my sense is these are totally different games. The whole management of them is different. The whole marketing of them is different. The manufacturing, whatever you're you're manufacturing, that's very, very different. What I like about the tech industry, though, is because they're dealing with ideas and electricity. There's product there, there's this and everything like that, but it's a very conceptual industry combined with electronics. And their way of thinking about it, I think, is very, very useful. So I'd like to come back to this concept of what part of your business could actually be a platform, what part of your business properly is an app, and what is the in-between that's actually a program. Which are three different things that you have to build almost simultaneously. Yeah, you've got to be aware of all three as you're doing each of them. And I think we've got some good seeds for future programs, too, about that. I think that could be really, really cool to explore. Because I'd also like to explore why doesn't the best idea always win? That's a great you know, I think that could be really cool to get into also. I noted down all uh, what tech calls thinking. I'll take a look at that. I'm so thrilled that you like Tim Wu because when I read him, I was just so taken by, for the exact same thing you said, is you're learning a history that is absolutely fascinating. Well, the other thing, he's personally, he seems to be a very, very engaging human being. I saw a YouTube of him when I gave the book out. I have a quarterly discussion group, and I gave it out. And what I'm doing now is I don't give them any book that they can't see a YouTube video of an interview Mm -hmm. where the person in an hour basically goes over the structure and the framework of the book. So Mm -hmm. that's one of the things I look. And he was at the Harvard Bookstore in Cambridge, Mass., He was so engaging, you know, he said, you know, it's really interesting, you know, you come into this bookstore all your life, and then one day you're invited and come and talk to the customers of the bookstore. He says, just kind of a neat experience. And then he he keeps talking about the one thing is he doesn't really have a good guy, bad guy framework for examining what he's doing. Mm -hmm. But he said, you know, corporations can grow really, really, really big. And at a certain time, they may be too big for everybody's good. Right. Yeah. I'm reading a book now that I think you would also really like. 
and it's called The Information by James Gleick. He is incredible. That information? Yeah. That information. James Gleick, G-L-E-I-C-K. There's a lot of really great stuff being written right now because this is really our reality now. We're we're not living in the industrial age anymore. We're living (laughs) in a completely different age. Well, some would say the information age. And this book was written probably eight years ago. And it's just brilliant. It's so, so interesting. The areas it goes into are so eye-opening and things that certainly I never thought about, like cultures that have oral tradition as opposed to written tradition and how there are entire languages that don't have alphabets. You know, it's just fascinating to think about. You know, in one of my classes, somebody said something about the Indians. And I said, well, you know, the Indians didn't call themselves Indians. <laughs> you know, they weren't Indians. It's like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Indians. <laughs> you know, he didn't know where he was going. He thought he was in India. And so how identity and culture. Yeah are so fascinating. This is the book. Oh, yeah. And it's a thick one, but it's absolutely fascinating. You'll love it. Okay. I have no doubt that you will. Well, I read four of the Tim Wu books. So first of all, he's a terrific writer. Yes. And he's a great storyteller. He's yes. a great storyteller. I mean, and that's the thing, isn't it? You have great content, but if you don't present it in an engaging way, I say to my students, the first day of class, there are no boring topics, but there's lots of boring teachers. Yes. And I'm going to try not to be one of those. (laughs) Okay. My best to Margaret. And to Babs. And this was, as always, fun. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.